Thompson, and you're listening to Something to Wrestle with Bruce Pritchard. Bruce, what's going on, man? How are you? Well, Conrad, I think we need to let everybody know what our morning has been like since we are doing this on a Friday morning. Don't normally do it this late, at least these days, but uh, we've had quite the challenge already. Yeah, uh, you're busier than a one-armed paper hanger with uh, all things WWE, and I am out of town, and we're recording with me on the road, but you're at home for a little bit of a change of pace, and uh, situation usual. We lost all of our settings and we had to spend the better part of the morning getting set up. So we apologize for being a little late today, but we are excited to be covering a show that I've wanted to talk about for a long time. Ground Zero 1997. Of course, this was one of the very last in your house events. I'm really excited about this one because I love all things from 1997. And um, this one feels like a good story sort of behind the scenes. I guess we should catch you up. It went down 22 years ago tomorrow from the Louisville Gardens right there in Louisville, Kentucky. Not a huge crowd, 4,963 fans, paying about 82,000 at the gate, another 44,000 in merchandise. It does a 0.45 buy rate, which is roughly 180,000 buys. So about 1.58 million in pay-per-view revenue. Things are going to look a lot different in 1998 and obviously 1999 and we're off to the races, but here in, in the fall of 97, would this have been, would this have been considered a success? You guys are going to be running house shows that are going to, you know, net $300,000 just at the gate. And here it's only 82 grand in the fall of 97. Well, first of all, it was a smaller market, smaller venue in Louisville, but I think that, uh, Business was starting to pick up, as somebody likes to say. And this was a time of rebuilding. This was a time of people garnering a lot more interest in the product. And we had the whole thing with Canada versus the USA, which we just kind of happened on to. And that was a nice little happy accident. Well, we're about two weeks away from Vince McMahon and Bret Hart meeting at the Madison Square Garden Raw on September 22nd. And that's where Vince lowers the boom that, hey, I can't afford to honor your contract. At this time, WWE behind the scenes is going to start making a lot of adjustments, one of which is to do away with the shorter two-hour pay-per-view, the in-your-house concept, expanding it to three hours and raising the price. They're going to change their travel. You guys are doing all sorts of cost-cutting measures and and little incremental changes to increase revenue both at the gate and on pay-per-view. Sort of give us the tone and tenor here in the fall of 97. Were your meetings with Vince always about just creative ideas? And how often were they more slanted towards how can we drive more revenue or cut costs? 
I think there are probably about everything involved because all of those things go together. So when you're looking at what it is that we were doing, we had put on these in-your-house pay-per-view events, which it costs no more money to produce a three-hour event than it does a two-hour event. The amount you can charge for a two-hour event versus a three-hour-plus event was significant. So that conversation came up a bit when we're sitting there thinking, okay, we're doing dark matches. We're doing other matches around the in-your-house. Is there a way that we just make that uh, doing a three-hour pay-per-view every month? And that was something we were in the beginning trying to avoid. But when you look at it logically from a business standpoint was it, it had to happen. We, we had to, you know, we had to make that move. We had to make the change over to going every month. And that was going to put a lot more revenue in our pocket. To bring clarity to that, you know, if you're only charging 1495 to start with, if you add another $10, you're talking about a substantial bump, not quite double, but a lot especially on 180,000 buys. If you add another $10 in there, that's another $1.8 million gross. Now, of course, you chop that up with your local cable providers and the pay-per-view company systems, but still, substantial increase. You mentioned that you guys sort of just fell into this USA-Canada thing. We've talked about that a lot. We're, of course, going to talk about it a little more now. We're on the heels of SummerSlam 97. Of course, that went down a month before. Everybody knows the story there with Steve Austin and Owen Hart, but the main event is what we're going to talk about first. It was a special guest referee with Shawn Michaels. And, of course, The Undertaker is going to be defending his world title that he won at WrestleMania 13 against Bret Hart. Bret's going to become victorious after the accidental errant chair shot that was intended for Bret Hart lands on The Undertaker. So, as a result, now we've been set up with a feud with The Undertaker and Shawn Michaels. Now, if you go back and you watch Wrestling with Shadows... We see Pat Patterson break the news to Brett that Sean is going to start to become a heel. And Brett doesn't seem to be too happy about that. I assume it's because Brett was sort of slotted as the number one heel in the promotion. And if Sean Michaels is now going to be a heel, he may see, okay, that's going to get crowded on my side. I like being the top guy, whether it's the top babyface or the top heel. And I haven't been a heel for so long. So this is a major deal for him. Do you remember having conversations with Brett as to how frustrated he may have been that you guys were going to turn Sean heel? I think Brett was frustrated with a lot of things at this point because in the beginning, Brett didn't care for the USA versus Canada entire storyline because I think Brett deep down really felt that he should have been a hero everywhere. So it was really interesting when I talked about it being a happy accident was that we were running more live events, more televised events in Canada, trying to you know, work in Canada more. We had an office there and we did good business in Canada. So it was an opportunity to give the states a bit of a respite. So I think that Brett just wasn't... Brett wasn't happy at the time. He really wasn't. So I think that you could have told Brett that, hey, Brett, you're going to be king of the world. And he would have second-guessed it and, and not been happy at that period of his career. It, that's so fascinating to me because I know he may have been reluctant to be a heel, but 
golly, it's the best stuff he did in his entire run to me. Just the promos were so great. The crowd reactions were incredible. I mean, we've talked about incredible crowd reactions at Canadian Stampede just a couple months prior to this. Maybe one of the hottest crowds in wrestling history, not just WWE, but anywhere. So despite these big crowd reactions and a lot of pe- a lot of fans really thinking, oh, we're on to something creatively, the NWO is still running roughshod. You guys are still playing catch-up ball. But it has shown a big increase from when Shawn Michaels was champion just one year prior. Let's run through some examples. Your average attendance in September of 96, 3,872 fans. A year later, we're up 12% to 4,348 fans. Your average gate, well, that's up a lot more than 12%, going from 62 grand on average in September of 96 to 78,000 here in September of 97. That's a representation of 26%. So huge jump. You're even selling out some house shows. Not a lot, but about 6%. You weren't selling out anything in September of 96. And your average cable rating, although it's still not beating the NWO, it's still a lot higher. 35% increase going from a 1.4 to a 1.9. Let's look at the ratings in September, though. You'll see what I mean when I say it's just not enough to be the top promotion at the time. On September 8th, Raw did a 2.2. Nitro does a 4.3. The night after Ground Zero, Raw gets a 2.6. So the Go Home episode got smashed, and then the night after, it's way up, you know, from a 2.2 to a 2.6, but Nitro still beats at 3.9. That trend continues. September 22nd, Raw gets a 2.4, Nitro gets a 3.7, and then we close out the month with Raw at a 2.7 and Nitro at a 4. When you look at these ratings, Bruce, and you see that, there's an okay rating, but not great, and the competition nearly doubles it on the go-home e- episode before a Raw or before a pay-per-view. But then even the night after, when you're up, they're still crushing you. Is that a little defeating, or are you just focused on your business at this point and trying to survive? At this point, you know, we're focusing on our business, and we're looking at it from the standpoint that we started to see what we – looked at is hey this is an upswing this is at least changing and we're going in the opposite direction we're not going down and we're maintaining and we're building a foundation well yes you know wcw during this period of time they man they they beat us and one of the things that they were starting to do which would ultimately be the downfall of uh, everything they were doing was you had these big stars on the WCW side that would not make house shows and that would be advertised and not show up. And, you know, we've all had histories of that at different points in the business, but this was a time that on the WWE side that so much importance was stressed on, you know, everybody makes house shows, everybody shows up for your dates and we were performing at a level that was hard to touch. So people started, you know, comparing and the, the buzz was like, you know, the perception and the numbers and everything were what they were. Reality was if you were to ask people, well, who had the more entertaining show? I think that people were starting to say, well, WWE, because it was, it was changing and it was moving in a different direction with Austin and kind of on the upswing and, and right here, <laughs> 
you know, he's on a hiatus due to a horrible injury, but it was just, um, we had some momentum and then we kind of got kicked in the nuts. All right, let's run a timeout right now. And I got to tell you, this is one I'm excited about. I can't believe I'm saying this. All elite wrestling is here Wednesday, October 2nd on TNT. Get ready for the revolution with all elite wrestling. Of course, we're talking about dynamite on TNT. It's the most exciting professional wrestling in the last decade made for wrestling fans by the wrestlers themselves and AEW flies higher, hits harder. And with their all inclusive roster of superstars, they're breaking all the boundaries. From Chris Jericho to Cody and Brandy Rhodes, of course, the Young Bucks, Nyla Rose, and more. All Elite Wrestling, a new league rises this Wednesday, October 2nd, 8 p.m. Eastern, 7 p.m. Central, only on TNT. I can't believe this is happening. Of course, if you're listening to this show, you know the talk of the wrestling business has been All Elite Wrestling. And man, it all comes to a head this Wednesday, October 2nd, on TNT. Set your alarm. 8 p.m. Eastern, 7 p.m. Central, only on TNT. Well, somebody who's really getting kicked in the nuts is Steve Austin. He goes in for an MRI on August 8th, and he's told by one of the leading neck specialists in the country that he should retire because he's going to risk paralysis to continue. The MRI is going to show what's known in football as a stinger, which is trauma to the C4 and C5 vertebrae. Of course, we know he's going to get a second opinion from a Philadelphia doctor, but he's going to be telling his friends and you guys, Hey, I really don't feel that bad. Yes. I have some pain, but I'm ready to go back to work. And you guys start to even think, Hey, he might be ready for the pay-per-view and on the way there on the half show loops, we're going to have triangle matches with Bret Hart, Steve Austin and the undertaker. But when he's clearly not cleared, they just make the switch to Bret and the undertaker I know we've talked about this a little bit before, but how chomping at the bit was Steve Austin to get back in the ring, despite what all the doctors said, and how did you guys have to sort of rein him back into doing these, he's still making appearances on TV. We know famously in a couple of weeks after this pay-per-view, he's going to stun Vince McMahon on TV, but when he's passing out these stunners to Sergeant Slaughter and Vince McMahon in a weird way. It helped him much more than if he would have been actively wrestling. Another one of those, as you would say, maybe happy accidents. But how much was was he pushing against that? Hey, I feel fine. Let me get in there. I think that uh, you saw both sides of Steve during that because there was a part of Steve that was realizing everything that was taking place from the standpoint of his star was as bright as it could possibly be during this period. But you also had Steve Williams, the man behind Steve Austin, who was thinking about paralysis and was thinking about long-term effects of this injury. So Steve was, was both sides. He was wanting to get back because he knew what lay in front of him. And at the same time, he wanted to make sure that he was healthy enough to get back. So it was you were getting both sides and and both sides a lot. So first of all, you go to a doctor and a doctor tells you you'll never wrestle again. And a lot of times that is very conservative and probably what most normal, uh, not a sports doctor would tell you because they look at these injuries and, and for all I know, they may be right. I'm not a doctor, but 
then you go to someone who's seen these injuries before and seen people kick out and they say, well, no, if you do this and you do that, you could add X number of years to your career. So there's always that search for the fix. How, how can I, how can I make this work? And Steve was dealing with that on a daily basis. Ahmed Johnson's also injured. Uh, he's been diagnosed as not a total ligament tear, but more of a re-aggravation of the previous injury. And we know that he was supposed to be uh, in, in a prime spot this summer, challenging the Undertaker for the title. He's electing instead not to have surgery, just undergo some intense rehab, and expected to be back in four to eight weeks. That's according to Dave Meltzer's Observer. And Johnson was actually told only 10 minutes before going out on Raw on August 4th that they were turning him back face. And he was told this because they felt they lost out on a top face by making him turn. I found that sort of interesting. I wouldn't have classified Ahmed Johnson as a top baby face in 97. And I know that he had that feud with the Nation of Domination and teamed up with the Road Warriors at WrestleMania 13, but I never really saw him as a top face. Do you think maybe in hindsight there was a missed opportunity here to not just double down on Ahmed as a heel? No, I think that if Ahmed was going to do anything, I think it was going to be in the babyface realm. And unfortunately, there were many attempts to make that happen, but it just, we never realized it. And for whatever reason, Ahmed couldn't get to that next level. We, and we tried, but it just sometimes some talents, they, they can reach a point, but they can't take it that next step and, and walk across the threshold. So that's where we were with Ahmed. And I think that if he was going to do anything, it was going to be on the babyface side. Let's talk a little bit about Sid. Meltzer would report that the situation was he wasn't immediately fired, but there was some sort of clause in his contract, which was essentially $400,000 a year guaranteed where if he had an injury clause, the WBF felt they had the right to cancel it. So they canceled his deal using this injury clause and then offer him a new deal where he would have earned the same 400000 but now they're going to break it down as you're going to make 2000 to 2500 per shot, maybe more for pay-per-views. But Sid doesn't like this and says, that's bullshit. The first contract shouldn't have been canceled. And at that point, he's threatening legal action, and you guys fire him. And his surgery on August 13th is deemed successful when they took bone from his hip to reconstruct his neck, and he is in the background chirping, I'm going to sue you. What do you remember about this whole situation with Sid coming to an end? And as a reminder, we should mention that the firing comes on the heels of a car crash with... um, Furnace and, and, and Two Cold Scorpio and Sid. Sid was driving, and this horrific crash leaves him uh, injured and in need of surgery. Well, you know, I'll, I'll say this. I think that sometimes when, especially in this period, you know, talent would be... Mm, and and Sid may have had a, 
a legitimate injury. And I'm not questioning his injury or the fact that he was in a bad car accident or anything of that nature. It's just that when you try to help someone and you try to figure out what's going on by using, hey, have your doctor communicate with us. Have our doctor see if they can help you. There's two sides to every story and not just the side that people want to put out and, and the other side doesn't speak for whatever reason due to privacy and contracts and all that other shit. But if you've got someone that is constantly injured, you have to be able to protect yourself on the contract side. Say, okay, if you're injured for more than so many days, we can't, we can't continue to do business. And the feeling was, was that Sid was ready to come back, uh, long before he did. And if he did, if, if Sid actually worked the number of dates, that he should have worked, he would have probably made a lot more than his downside guarantee. Problem is, Sid chose to sit home for a lot of that. So that was, that's what I remember on the deal. It just was a situation where, you know, hey, okay, you can't work, you don't want to work. Some doctors say you can. Uh, you're finding ones, you know, the exact opposite of what Austin is doing. You know, Austin's trying to find any doctor to say, yes, you can come back to work today. Sid's trying to find a doctor to say, no, you can't. And I, that's I'm not saying that's what he did. I'm just giving a comparison. And um, you, you've got to just go back and look at it. Hey, had you worked all this time, you would have made more than your downside guarantee. But that didn't happen. Somebody who's dealing with all of that from the WWE side, of course, is Jim Ross. Meltzer would report that he's been elevated to senior vice president of Titan Sports and is now, as a result of this promotion, the highest ranking official in the company not named McMahon. He's in charge of things like contract negotiations, talent recruiting, and of course playing a major role in booking the house shows and pay-per-view shows. The ultimate decisions, of course, are and always have been and likely always will be in the hands of Vince McMahon, when Jr. gets this promotion, that seems like something Jr. would have been really proud of. And uh, I'm curious how it was received in the office and what you remember about Jim's reaction to this promotion being. Oh, Jim was tickled to death, and I think that Jim, you know, definitely politicked for that position. And it's it's kind of one of those situations where. Jim Ross was the best man for that job. Jim wanted it. And for whatever reason, it took him a little bit longer to get there and get the recognition. But Jim was very good at that. Jim was very good in his role of talent relations during that time. So uh, he finally had the title to go with it. And he finally was put in that position and given that recognition, which was good for Jim and good for the company both. So this is probably... Pre-Moscow Mule days, it was probably back in the Crown Royal era for Jim Ross. He was probably looking for some cheers, had that existed. I gotta tell you, cheers is the deal. It's designed to reduce the negative effects of alcohol, and it works. Use it, and then you can tell your friends your story. We have uh, we have really enjoyed it here on Something to Wrestle. We've tried the product a few times, and uh, it makes us feel a whole lot better the next day. Let me explain what we're talking about. It's the Cheers After Alcohol Aid. And you heard me. It's designed to reduce the negative effects of alcohol. You know what we're talking about. 
if you go ahead and drink a little or a lot, all you have to do is take two to four easy capsules before you go to bed. And then you're gonna feel at least 50% better in the morning or your money back guaranteed. It's like antacid for alcohol. No more headaches, no more nausea, no more sluggishness the next day, and it's even good for your liver. And Bruce, I know you were a little skeptical of this because you're an old school drinker from way back, but you've had uh, some wine, you've had some vodka, you've had your normal routine where maybe you overdo it a little bit here or there, and maybe you were skeptical at first, but when you woke up the next day, you were a true believer, am I right? Well, yes, and actually this past weekend, I'm not going to mention any names, uh, went out with uh, a couple of our friends and we were drinking wine and the comment was made, oh, you know what, I'm, I'm going to have half a glass of wine and, and I'm good. I said, well, let me tell you a little something about that because he kept saying, oh, we've got to work tomorrow. I said, oh, let me tell you something about that. Take a couple of these, yeah, two to four tablets after drinking and tomorrow morning you're gonna feel so much better i did my part i shared it with them i took mine i woke up i felt great didn't have that hangover didn't have that sluggish feeling all day so cheers to cheers from me how about this it's almost like a little gang i know i'm saying that to be funny but realistically nobody wants to just drink alone and if you do maybe you need to go to a meeting or something but if you're going to be enjoying socially, you want your friends to want to do that again. Enjoy cheers yourself. And once you prove it to yourself, share it with your friends. Check this out. Order it right now and you will be glad you did. Bruce and I absolutely love this product. You will too. It's cheershealth.com. And just enter our promo code WRESTLE and you'll get 10% off your first order plus a free gift. That's cheershealth.com. And enter that promo code WRESTLE. You'll get 10% off and a free gift. Cheers. It's the best thing to happen to alcohol since alcohol. So cheers to JR on the promotion. Now let's talk about Rick Rude. Uh, He's brought in as part of a working agreement with Paul Heyman. Uh, Rude appeared and in exchange, JR plugged the ECW pay-per-view show and the Lawler Dreamer match several times on Raw. Of course, we're talking about Hardcore Heaven. And the original deal, according to Meltzer, was for it to be a one-time only thing. But judging from TV, it certainly looks like Michaels has a new bodyguard in Rick Rude. Uh, Chat me up here. Rude's commitment is to the ECW show. And then once he finishes that pay-per-view, he's going to be with Raw. He had no contract with ECW. So it felt like he was just going to be jumping over to the WWF. And we famously talked about how maybe you guys weren't getting him on a long-term contract was going to come back to bite you in the butt. But Heyman felt like he could do both spots, but I don't think that that was necessarily Rick Rude's plan. What do you remember about Rude coming in? Why was he the right guy to be a a quote-unquote heavy or a bodyguard for Shawn Michaels? What brought this all together? Oh, boy. Um... I got a call from Vince on a Sunday morning and he said, uh, I want Rick Rude at TV and the TV that we were coming up to was in Atlantic city. So what do you want to do with Rude? And he explained what he wanted to do. And he said, but, uh, 
This is a, I'm not going to sign him. I don't want to sign him. So just, you know, get him there and, and we'll figure out the rest from there. We'll do a nightly deal with him and, and that's it. Okay. It's just not a long-term thing or anything we need time on. Nope. And wasn't necessarily really even a one-off at the time. It was maybe two or three dates, but he had been working for Paul. So I got his number from Paul, but it wasn't because of any agreement. It was just Paul didn't have him under contract either. So called Rick. <laughs> Last time Rick and I had actually spoke, he had threatened to kill me. So that was an interesting conversation. <laughs> uh, remind and, me of, of how that call went where he threatened to kill you. Uh, he just told me that what goes around comes around. And if I was uh, within a hundred miles of him, he would find me and probably poke my eyeballs out. And I said, well, Rick, I'm pretty sure I'm more than a hundred miles away from you. And I really don't want to get my eyeballs ripped out. And sorry, you feel that way. And maybe when we see each other down the road, it'll be good. So I did bring that conversation up to Rick when I called him. And I hope that since if he were going to come and do this, that we would be it probably within a hundred feet of each other and probably real close. And, uh, Want to make sure he was still good with everything. He laughed about it, and and we had a good chuckle and moved on, moved forward. So we got Rick to Atlantic City, and we were just doing nightly deals with Rick. That was that was about it. But it wasn't a working agreement with ECW. I think the only thing that Paul had to do with it at the time was giving me his number, and I asked Paul, "Says he under contract? Do you have anything with me?" He said, "No, we're just using him." So. That's how the deal went down with Rick Rude. It's fascinating to me, though, that he's chosen for this spot because the prior time we saw Shawn Michaels have a bodyguard, and I guess we're not referring to him as a bodyguard. I think he was always referred to as the insurance policy. But still, it was a seven-foot diesel. Not exactly the same stature as Rick Rude, but he just had the right look, or, or Vince just really... Liked working with him. What was it about him that made him the, the right guy for the role? I think that Rick also had the name recognition and Rick Rude had a reputation. So people, your average audience member, they would remember Rick Rude from a few years ago when he had been with the company. So it wasn't a stranger to the television audience. You know, when you, you look at Diesel, Diesel was somebody we had to introduce and someone that we had to make. Rick Rude could come in kind of pre-made, and I thought it was a, actually I thought it was a pretty good package with Rude. I think that was Russo's idea, either Russo or Shawn Michaels, one of the two, probably Shawn since it was a good idea. Occasionally, of course, uh, Dave Meltzer gets some stuff wrong, and he would write in this era. Occasionally, the <laughs> occasionally. Even a blind squirrel finds a nut every once in a while. He would write. Motherfucker makes up shit and lies more than anybody I've ever fucking seen in my life. He would write. The idea of having Michaels, Rude, and Helmsley as the new clique is already out the window. Although they may put Michaels in with Helmsley as they're trying to find a way to elevate Helmsley to the next level. Of course, we know that China would actually be a part of that group as well. And DX would be born. So uh, that, that trio had legs. 
Uh, Meltzer would also report that Mark Henry is headed to Calgary to train under Bret Hart and Leo Burke, and WWE is trying one last prayer to see if they'll ever get anything out of their multi-million dollar guaranteed contract they gave Mark Henry before the Olympics. Of course, we know Mark Henry is going to go on to be a bona fide Hall of Famer and have quite the run, but here in late 97, you guys had to be scratching your head and thinking, uh-oh, we made a mistake here. Living on a prayer. How was that? Was that good? That was pretty good. I like when you sing, but I mean, you haven't sang your real song in a long time. We'll get to it later. They spend my days working hard on the go, but the hands on the clock keep spinning too slow. I can't wait to be alone with my baby tonight. Do you still get a hug from Jeff? You know my baby's got me wrapped around her little finger. And you know that I will walk through hell and back to be with her. Because I can't wait to be alone with my baby tonight. I ain't living on a prayer. I ain't got a fever, got a permanent disease. And it'll take more than a doctor to prescribe a remedy. I got lots of money, but it isn't what I need. Because it'll take more than a shot to get this fever out of me. I got them all, man. Are you okay? Hot wax dripping, honey, what do you say? I got a brand new record that I got to play. She said, not now, boy, but I did anyway, because I'm ready. So ready. Go! By the way, I feel like now's a good time to tell everybody that this is not actually a side effect of Blue Chew. Um, this just happens. But you can find all about Blue Chew, everything you need, over at BlueChew.com. That's blue like the color blue. And I know what Bruce is so excited about over there. You know, it's the world's first chewable that has the same active ingredients as both Viagra and Cialis. And if you were around today, it would have even worked on hashtag Rick Rude's dog. You can take them anytime, day or night, even on a full stomach. And since they're chewable, they can work up to twice as fast. So you can be ready whenever the opportunity arises. And I know you recently shipped some of this, Bruce, uh, to your your great close personal friend, Kamala. And uh, I think you actually got a quote from Kamala's penis about Blue Chew, didn't you? Now, this isn't just for guys who can't perform. It's for any guy who wants extra function to enhance their performance in the bedroom. It's prescribed online and shipped straight to your door in a discreet package. So no in-person doctor's visits, no waiting in the pharmacy. Best of all, no more awkwardness. It's made right here in the USA, and because they ship direct, it's cheaper than a pharmacy. We've got a great deal for you right now over at BlueChew.com. You get your first shipment for free. Just use our promo code WRESTLE, and you'll only pay $5 shipping. One more time, that's B-L-U-E-Chew.com. The promo code is WRESTLE, and you get to try it for free. Blue Chew is the better, cheaper, faster choice, and we thank them for sponsoring the podcast. So, uh, Mark Henry, and that you know what, and, and, and if you're like Stephen Todd, and you, I have a bad love now. You're 25 weeks. I hear the Joe is so tight. Your love is sweet, but I'm ready because I got my Blue Chew. Good. I like it. Let's keep it. Let's do it. Uh, chat me up, Mark Henry. You guys ready to cut bait here? You think by the fall of 97? I mean, we're looking for ways to cut costs. You know, we're about to tell, you know, Bret Hart we can't afford him. 
but yet we're obligated to this big contract we're getting seemingly no return out of with Mark Henry. How close did he come to the chopping block? I think that Mark, you know, had some soul searching to do in the beginning. Mark was, in my opinion, kind of looking at what he was doing as almost, it was entitlement a little bit because Mark had been an athlete his entire life and he had been pampered and trained and, and groomed as an athlete. And now he was out on his own and he had to have the discipline to make this a reality and actually make all this come to fruition. So it was on Mark and it wasn't on his coach or his manager or someone else to get him to the gym and get him in shape. So this was just that, that one more effort to say, Mark, you have an opportunity here. You have an opportunity to be a huge star uh, but you have to get better at your craft. And the business was never a place where, you know, hands were held and you were caught along fed pablum. So this was a chance for Mark to go and get your ass out to Calgary, get serious and move on. Somebody else is going to be moving on. It's great Sasuke. Meltzer would say there's no plans for his return. And Sasuke had recently wanted to do a trade where he would come over and appear on a WWF show in exchange for The Undertaker appearing on his October 10th show. But you guys turned that down, saying The Undertaker <laughs> in Japan is worth far more than Sasuke in the United States. Paul Heyman hears about this and asks if he can use Sasuke and his talent on his November to Remember pay-per-view. And McMahon gave him the impression that they don't want anything to do with you, but be your be his guest. What do you remember about this proposed talent trade, and how lopsided a shit is that? Sasuke for Undertaker. Yeah, well, that, that all came from Sasuke, and that was in his head, so you can only imagine where, you know, what inflated ego there was on that side because it was absolutely absurd. But no, there was... I think that that was more of the Dave Meltzers of the world and these people making up their fantasy of because the guy was Japanese and had a company, then he must be the greatest thing in the world and everybody wants to see him in Northern California. But um, no, there, there wasn't. They, they had come to us about a possibility of working with The Undertaker at some point. We were interested in Taka Michinoku, who worked for Sasuke's company. So it was we didn't want to take Taka from them without, you know, saying, hey, uh, Taka's interested in coming to work for us. We're interested in using Taka and Sasuke kind of holding that over Taka's head. And he wanted to work in the States. That's uh, a big deal, you know, many years ago for a top star in Japan to come over, and work Madison Square Garden or work anywhere in the United States. They would send a lot of the Japanese press to cover that, and it made them a much bigger deal in Japan. And that's what Sasuke was looking for. So we thought, okay, we'll use Sasuke. We'll put him in a prominent role in the light heavyweight tournament division and use Sasuke as a tool to get Takamichinoku over as well. Um, but there was maybe in Dave Meltzer and Sasuke's mind, there was thought of a trade. And the only place that I ever heard of a trade of anything like that was in the rumor and innuendo bullshit era. Sasuke uh, 
never brought up a trade. He brought up he would like to bring Undertaker over, and what would that take? And the fact that he would like to work in the states as well. So we told we gave Paul his numbers and have at it. <laughs> Let's talk about Ken Shamrock. He actually does his first pinfall job since he joined the company on the Canadian House Show Loop for Owen Hart with Bulldog interfering. And of course, Owen and Bulldog and Brett were working a heel style, but still cheered wildly every night on this tour. And the reports were that Shamrock and Owen stole the show on the Canadian shows. Uh, why was it finally time for Shamrock to catch a pin? Just right time, right place, right opponent with Owen in Canada? Hey, when's it the right time for anybody to lose by pin? It, it's a wrestling business. Everybody loses, and the, that's wrestling business. So, But being with Owen Hart, when you say stole the show, that would be uh, an understatement. I think most of the time Owen would go out and steal the show in one way or another. That was what he did. I guess I just mean when you, you bring in a guy from another walk of life and you've promoted him as the world's most dangerous man, it feels like, you know, when he lost his first match, you guys might have saved it for pay-per-view. Why wasn't that on the agenda, do you think? Well, I don't know that it wasn't. And in house shows, you know, it wasn't as widely, oh, my God, reported all over the Internet that, right. oh, my God, Ken Shamrock lost a pinfall. Nobody thinks like that. I just don't. I just really don't believe that. The audience thinks that way, and especially the flow of information was not nearly what it is today. You're talking 1997 here, where computers are still in their infancy in this thing that Al Gore created and invented. <laughs> the, the whole Internet, World Wide Web, that came out of his head while he was smoking dope with Jerry Jarrett. Um, hey, catch me up for real. You know, you guys used to trade internal M uh, me uh, memos, easy for me to say, a Titan. So someone would, would crank out that shit on a typewriter when you first joined the company. Eventually, you guys would do it by computer and print it out, but then you'd still have somebody deliver it around. How does Vince McMahon adapt to email and AOL and dial-up internet? This feels like this would have been a fun and interesting time around the chairman. Slowly. Um <laughs> You know, first of all, all of us that were doing uh, dial-up, good God. You're probably too young to even remember dial-up. Oh, no, I had dial-up. I had 14.4 and then 28.8 and then 56K. And I don't even know what the fuck you're saying right now. Well, th those were real things. Let me just say that. Okay, well, I remember just plugging the damn cord into the phone to have to listen to... <laughs> we're connecting now and welcome to AOL yeah it was pretty fucking annoying um, but nah man shit you go from the tried and true delivery system of inner office mail where you got a piece of paper with shit on it man that was much better than this damn computer thing instantaneous <laughs> gratification bullshit Meltzer would say there's been a lot of talk of late of the WWF taking over the Memphis territory if this ownership group pulls out. The WWF wants to use the territory and control the booking as a way to get its younger wrestlers under contract to gain some experience. The ECW relationship is different 
and that the belief is that ECW fans are both too impatient and unforgiving for inexperienced wrestlers to work there and not be psychologically driven right out of the business. Plus, the style that they'd learn to get over in ECW wouldn't be applicable to the style they'd have to work in the WWF. However, WWF does want to send contract to talent that they're not used correctly and have talent experience like Al Snow and PJ Walker, for instance, go to ECW and get repackaged. And of course, we know Al Snow's going to come up with head there. PJ Walker's going to become just incredible. Uh, talk to me about why Memphis was maybe a better developmental than ECW. I don't think Memphis was a better developmental than ECW. I think that they were different. They all had their own merits, their own pros and cons. Same thing with, with Florida, same thing with Atlanta, same thing with Cincinnati, California. Um, we had developmental territories all over the country where we would send talent. And the reasoning behind it, and it was my reasoning from the standpoint of I always thought that a talent who was more rounded by being able to work in more territories could hone their craft better because you're playing in front of a different audience that expects something different. For example, the crowds in Tennessee, in Memphis, Tennessee, are going to be different in their reaction and what they expect because they were used to a certain style in Memphis than what they're going to expect in Texas, what they're going to expect in Atlanta and what have you. So to that, I thought that it was valuable to have as many different territories. So to compare Memphis to ECW, completely different animals. And I thought that they both had a value. Pros and cons to both of them. But they both had a value. And we were already working with Memphis, and we were already giving Memphis creative input as to how to use our talent and working with them. There was no no talk, at least to my knowledge, of us ever going in taking over Memphis. That's just, you know, some guy. I don't know. Maybe it was all the meetings that Dave Meltzer had in, in the building and, you know, one-on-one with him and Vince and Jerry Lawler and, and Paul Heyman. So, Boy, you, I don't know. you got you got a burr up your saddle about Dave Meltzer today, don't you? Well, he's a, he's an expert because he spent so many years in the business. He's been in so many of these high level meetings, and he is he has his finger on the pulse of everything that's going on. He's a fucking genius because of all of his experience and because he's actually been there and worked in the business. And he doesn't just get phone calls from guys who just want to tell him whatever they want to tell him. Or, or or he doesn't just go out on Twitter and say, hey, anybody go to the show last night? Give me a report. And then that's what he reports from somebody that bought a ticket in the fourth row to give them their, this is exactly what happened and why. Yeah. So, I mean, he's got shitloads of credibility. Just so much credibility. I feel it's appropriate that the name of this show is Ground Zero. Uh, the first match is a rematch. From SummerSlam, Brian Pillman and Goldust. You may remember uh, Goldust got a win over Pillman at SummerSlam, and as a result, Pillman's been forced to wear a dress until he wins a match. But that won't keep Pillman from taking verbal shots at Goldust, who's going to continue to interfere in Pillman's matches to ensure that Pillman keeps losing and therefore stays in the dress. Pillman challenges Goldust to one more match, and Goldust declines, but Marlena accepts. And the stipulation for this match is that if Pillman loses, 
he has to leave the company. But if Pillman wins, he gets Marlena as a personal assistant for 30 days. Now, this angle was done years ago in World Class with David Von Erich, Jimmy Garvin, and Precious. Later in the NWA, it would be Dusty Rhodes, Tully Blanchard, and Baby Doll. They're going to go 11 minutes and 5 seconds, and they finally introduce a new aspect to the storyline, a real-life you know, uh, situation. Pillman and Terry had a relationship before she married Dustin, and Pillman was the one who dumped Terry, and she went on to Dustin on the rebound. As far as the actual truth goes, well, the timing lines up, but the rebound thing may be suspect. Either way, though, Pillman's limited in his work here with his bad ankle, but it's probably his best performance since his accident, according to Dave. Uh, lots of chance here from the crowd. Half are pro Goldust, the other half are pro Pillman. Eventually, you know what's coming. Two and a half star match. Pillman gets the pin. Uh, and he does this after he gets Marlena's loaded purse, hits Goldust with it, and there's a brick in there, of course. Pass. Chat me up. What'd you think? Actually, I thought that, you know, the match was good, and I thought that, you know, because going back, this was during the time that, you know, Brian had been gone and back and back and gone. So Brian was working through a lot of pain and a lot of injuries, but I thought this match was good. I thought that this whole program was interesting, and especially the commitment that Pillman put into it, because Pillman embraced wearing the dress and and loved going out and doing it, made made the most out of it. You saw this psychotic guy standing out there in a dress, and it wasn't like he was embarrassed. It was almost, it was just weird, I guess is the best way to describe it. So um, Pillman, Pillman made that issue, and he made that angle work. And, and Goldust was right there, and it was, you know, kind of hard to get sympathy on, on a character like Goldust. In, in this situation, when we would portray Goldust as Dustin with his wife and with his daughter, I felt that it really made people feel for the human being and accomplished exactly what we were looking for. Yeah, Meltzer would say the angle aspect was great and the match was good. For the rest of the show, Lawler's going to keep talking about how Pillman and Marlena are in a hotel somewhere. And we know the result of this is going to be a series of Brian Pillman's X-Files vignettes that would air on TV. But Brian unfortunately passed away before the angle could be completed, dying just one month later before Bad Blood. What was the planned result of these Brian Pillman's X-Files and this storyline? Well, I mean, the the result was going to be Dustin winning his wife back and everyone lives happily ever, ever after, but only after a uh, Marlena heel turn there for a while and then make gold dust whole again. Well, Pillman's still missed today. It's crazy with everything that's happening in wrestling right now. Can you imagine how invaluable he would be at like a performance center on character development or stuff like that? That'd be crazy. Without a doubt, Brian had a unique outlook on the business and was able to parlay that into a hell of a career. Up next, Brian Christopher and Scott Putsky. They go to a count out in four minutes and 40 seconds. Uh, not a great match. They're just getting started when Christopher hits a Piscato and lands low, and Putsky's knee goes out, catching him. 
He couldn't get up, and they show a close-up of the knee, that's out of position. He's carried it out on a stretcher, and the immediate word that Meltzer got was, it's a torn quad, and he's going to have to have surgery the next day and be out of action for three months. Lawler does a monologue on him, but seeing the severity of the injury, he stops. He gets half a star. Obviously, this is uh, the end of Scott Putsky in the WBF. I don't think we ever saw him again. Why was he not brought back after the injury, do you think? Well, first of all, I think that the the injury, that was something he was going to be out for six to nine months anyway. So by the time that it was ready for him to come back, I don't even know if he made an inquiry to come back, but I don't think that there was really much more for Scott at that point. And, you know, Scott Putsky is one of those guys that, in my opinion, I thought that Scott got a bad rap and he might have gotten a bad rap from the previous reputation of his father. And Scott was one of these guys, had a great body and a great look, wasn't the biggest guy in the room, but could come off a little bit aloof. Uh, But I always got along with Scott and I thought, man, if you could just harvest and channel that arrogance with Scott that he didn't even know you know, he was putting off. You can make some money with the guy um, because he really was a very intelligent and very, very nice man. So you, you want good people to do well. And in my opinion, I thought Scott was one of those, one of those good guys that should do well in the business. Next up, we've got Savio Vega in a triangle match with Farouk and Crush. They go 11 minutes and 39 seconds. Meltzer hated it. He said uh, it went too long, got really bad. Uh, And he says, in particular, Vega and Farouk blew a neckbreaker spot worse than you'd expect from two guys in their first pro match. He says the only pop in the match was for Crush's bike. And the finish should be described as a mercy killing, negative star and a half. What'd you think of this one, Bruce? Well, ugly comes to mind. <laughs> it just, it was zero chemistry, and, and it looked like, um, I don't know, man, because I think if you were to take, for example, let's take Savio Vega and Farouk and put them in a match. I think that they would have one hell of a match. I think if you were to take Savio Vega and put Crush in a match together, I think they would have a decent match. This was not good. And it just, for whatever reason, it was three completely different styles clashing and making ugly soup. So I thought it was drizzling shits. Something I enjoyed as a kid a great deal, though. Excuse me. As the next match, Max Mini and El Torito. This is the repackaged... Uh, Mexican minis with Max being the former Mascarita Sagrada Jr. and Baby Rabbit and Torito being the former Mini Vader and Esprestito, probably butchered that, number one. This uh, this was fun for me as a kid. The new names are because Antonio Pena threatened the WBF with legal action saying he owned the rights and created the names. And you guys are starting to push Max here as the world's smallest professional athlete. The first two minutes are incredible. 
Lots of fun moves. I mean, you really should go out of your way to watch this. Probably one of the best mini matches I've ever seen. It got two and three-quarter stars. Of course, Max Mini's our hero. He's going to win in nine minutes, 20 seconds. We've talked about the minis before, but such a big part of 1997, starting at the Royal Rumble and on forward. What did you think of this match? And uh, can you give us your Hispanic pronunciations of these names? Well, first of all, um, with the minis, I think that you, you got all you could get. It was they're an attraction, but to see them all the time is is a little too much. So, because they're not there's not that much they can they can do beyond what they do. So, once you see it, you've kind of seen it. And these were the best of those available to us at that time. And I think they were the best minis that were out there and you have Mascarita Sagrada Jr. Who was Max mini E baby rabbit. Um, talented, you know, very, very talented guy that could do some incredible acrobatic moves, but it wasn't like you were going to get this great psychological match with a story in it. It was, you're going to get high spots and you're going to get a mini match. So, you know, that's what it was. And you look at, uh, El Torito, which is, uh, an old Mexican restaurant somewhere, which is El Bull, the Bull, El Torito, si, uh, who also worked his mini Vader y Espectrito. I think there was an Espectrito Junior E Senior. I think he was just Espectrito. I have no idea what the fuck that means. But all, but all of them great guys. And, you know, my fate, these were literally my two favorites was Mini Vader and, and Max Mini. Because Vader could do anything and everything. You talk about getting heat with Leon. When Leon saw the Mini Vader, he about shit his pants. <laughs> what did uh what did pat patterson think of the minis i love the little bastards oh my god i tell you tiger jackson and sky lolo they're the best they're the best they are my little the beaver i love them but they're in a place a little mexican mini yeah they're good that chases what about vince what do you think of the minis Vince enjoyed him. I mean, Vince loved Max, and and he loved Vader too. I mean, little Vader. Um, so it was here. Were, here were two guys that that could go out and do it, and they were a nice attraction to have on a live event and on pay per view to kind of lighten it up. Next up on the show is the ceremony where Dude Love and Steve Austin are supposed to give up the tag belts to Sergeant Slaughter. Of course, dude gives his up, and Austin comes out to a huge pop, starts running down Jim Ross, Vince McMahon, and Sergeant Slaughter, throws the belt down, calls JR a fat ass, and when Ross praises him, he gives him the stunner, and the crowd is chanting, Slaughter sucks, as they're helping Ross out. And I guess they were, Meltzer would say, it appeared they were supposed to do a stretcher job for JR, but they just used the stretcher for real on Putsky and forgot to bring it back. But this is uh, going to steal the show, this whole segment here. So much fan support for Steve Austin. And he's uh, got this bad neck, and, and he's, he's giving stunners away left and right here. 
Is it, does anybody say, hey, maybe that's not the right call? You know, I, I, obviously I'm not a doctor, but you're going to fall down on your ass. That's going to got to put pressure on your vertebrae to do this move, does it not? Well, it's it's the from the other end. So I I and I say that in jest, but I also say that in reality that some doctors felt well, if you fall on it this way, there's less of a chance that you could cause any damage versus the other way. Regardless, your your wear and tear and taking that tailbone bump is going to contribute to deterioration down the line. But you know, we had enough that. Steve was cool to do that, but we didn't want to put him in the ring. Also, in my opinion, the fact that we kept Steve out of the ring and out of matches made him more popular. Absolutely. So by the time that Steve got back in the ring and was ready to go, the crowd was so ready for it. And they were happy with the antics that Steve did in, you know, around the ring and outside of the ring more so than wrestling a match. Trash or fresh? Well, we're not done with Steve Austin on this show. Excuse me, folks. I got the uh, StarCast flu. Uh, the Headbangers are going to be in a Four Corners elimination match with Owen and Davey, the Legion of Doom, and the Godwins. Meltzer would say it was an awful match, uh, just a, a misfiring, clash of styles, whatever. He gives it a dud rating. Uh, it's probably not the best match on the show. We should mention, though, that the uh, the finish comes when Steve Austin does a run-in after Owen Hart has Mosh in the Scorpion or the uh, Sharpshooter. Austin's going to do a run-in and give Owen the stunner, and that allows Mosh to score the pin. The Headbangers are your tag champs. I don't know that anybody saw that one coming, but nice storyline, nice way to use Austin here. I mean, even though the match maybe was crap, the finish is pretty good, wouldn't you agree? I thought the finish was good, and again, it was a... It was a way to get everybody involved in one match, get everybody out there, and nobody, as you just said it, nobody thought that the Headbangers would win this damn thing, which is why, you know, the Headbangers worked to win the damn thing. And it was a clash of, <laughs> it's another one. You go back to the previous match with the the three-way, and that was a clash of styles and just guys that had eight left feet. Here's another situation here, but this, the story was able to make it fun and you could follow it and you did not predict that ending. This is the match I'm most excited to talk about next. It's Bret Hart defending his world title against the Patriot. There's so much to talk about here. The Patriot debuts on the July 14th Raw to stand up against Bret and defend America. A couple weeks later, on the July 28th Raw, Patriot actually gets a pinfall win over Brett when Sean distracts uh, Brett from ringside while doing uh, guest commentary. The Patriot scores a quick roll-up pin on Brett. The idea of bringing him in has always fascinated me here. We'll get into that in a minute. But the next week on Raw, Sergeant Slaughter is introduced as the new commissioner of the WWF, and he's going to order Brett to defend the world title against the Patriot at Ground Zero. And, of course, Brett and the Patriot brawl later that night. The next week, Hart would attack Patriot after he won a tag match with Ken Shamrock against Owen and Bulldog. The following week, 
Patriot would get a pinfall win over Vader, and once again, Brett would attack him. Vader goes to the second rope for the Vader bomb, and Brett lays the Canadian flag across Patriot. Vader, seeing this, comes over, takes the flag off, and starts fighting Brett, which forms a bit of an alliance with Patriot and Vader, uh, sort of turning Vader babyface, at least for a minute here, for the first time in his WWF career. On the Friday night edition of Raw the next week, because Raw was preempted, Vader and Hart fought for the title, and the match ends when the Hart Foundation attacks Vader, and of course, Patriot runs out for the save. On the September 5th, Friday night's main event, Patriot defeats Owen Hart by DQ after Brett and Bulldog interfere, and Vader makes the save. So, I guess what I'm fascinated about here is the Patriots been in the wrestling game for a long time, and as far as I know, never really had a sniff from the company until Brett got white hot with this anti-American gimmick, this whole new, as you like to say, a fresh paint of coat for Bret Hart here. But when you look around, there's not a lot of obvious people for him to have a match with. Steve Austin's on the shelf. He can't wrestle. They know they're saving Shawn Michaels for a bigger show, whether it's Survivor Series or the Royal Rumble or WrestleMania, whatever the long-term plan was at that point. Of course, we know SummerSlam is going to be Brett and The Undertaker, but we've got to have a way to get there. We've got to have something to do afterwards. And if Undertaker's going to be programmed with Sean, and Austin's on the shelf, and Ahmed's not probably the right guy, who else can be your white meat American babyface? Who had the idea to call the Patriot in? Why wasn't he looked at before? What can you tell us about his time here? Chat me up. Well, I, I'd been talking about bringing Dell in for quite some time, and, and Dell had had tryouts with WWE before. Uh, when Let me ask he this. Was, I don't mean to cut you off, but you first met him in Global, is that right? That's where I first met him. But, but we had actually, um, prior to that, even prior to Global, it was the first time I really worked with him, but he had come through and done tryouts when he was the Stormtrooper, or state trooper, whatever the hell he was, uh, with Vern. And he'd come in and he just was colorless, odorless, tasteless, great body, great look, but just not a lot of personality. And in my opinion, the mask and the gimmick of the Patriot put some personality into Dell. Um, I had brought Dell up from the moment that I came back in 1992 Dell during that time was happy doing his, he had a great deal in Japan and had been doing stints back and forth to Japan for all Japan uh, pro wrestling. So Dell wanted to continue that Dell wanted to go on and uh, continue doing Japan dates and not work in the States because it was just too taxing on him. The time away from home and time he was right. And we're looking for baby faces. We're looking for people to come in. And I called Dell. His deal in Japan was coming to an end and he was getting ready to renegotiate us. So before you do that, come up and talk to us. So Dell came up and uh, Vince really liked him and thought, man, you know, with this Patriot gimmick, with everything we have going, this may be one of those situations where you can bring a guy in, slide him right in on top. He had the look. He could work, and let's let's try it. And that's how Dell got in at the time. And Jim Cornette was a big proponent for Dell. Jim also was 
Adele Wilkes fan and felt that the Patriot coming in would be a good opponent for Brett. So that's how all that happened. And I think that, um, in theory, all that, all that works. Uh, what didn't work was we didn't realize, and, and Dell has told this story many times in interviews and what have you. Um, Dell was damaged goods when we got him. Dell had shoulder issues and some other uh, nagging injuries from Japan that he had never taken care of. And then he had that little respite, and then he came back, and the injuries just reared their ugly head. And we weren't informed ahead of time that all these injuries were there. So it was it was a tough and, and quick, quick tour for Dell Wilkes as the Patriot in WWE. Well, this is an interesting match. They get three and a quarter stars. They go 19 minutes and 20 seconds. We need an opponent for Bret Hart. We need an opponent to challenge for the world title. But it's not the main event. At this point, does Vince not see the Patriot as a viable main event opponent? Or does he not think that Bret is going to be able to bring a main event level match the way Sean and Undertaker would? Well, again, I, I don't subscribe to, well, the last match is the main event. Th- that's not so. And I think this was one of those, It was, if anything, it was a double main event with Sean and Taker and Brett and Patriot. And somebody's got to go on before that. We, we knew where we wanted to go ending with Sean and Undertaker. So, you know, Brett and them went on before that. I didn't think Brett closing that show was the right way to go. So, you know, main event is a term, I think, that people think, oh, well, the main event's the last match. No, it's not. Well, now, hang on. It's not always the last match. You can't talk out of your both sides of your mouth on this one because you, for years, have talked about when the torch is passed and and, and Hulk Hogan's no longer there and now Brett's going to be the franchise. You guys would sit around in meetings. When you're coming up with something for Brett, you would say, what would we do for Hulk? Hulk would not be in this spot. Fuck it, he wasn't. Hulk always went on in the middle of the show. Hulk always went on in the middle of the show on Saturday night's main event and perhaps house shows. But even at WrestleMania 8, and I know you weren't there for that, the world title match with Ric Flair and, and Randy Savage did not close the show. Hulk Hogan in a non-title match did. Hulk Hogan always closed pay-per-views. Hogan must pose, pal. Come on. Yeah, so you're, you're giving an example. You're, at this point, and in this point in the business, we're comparing apples to pomegranates. And we had also at this point figured out that, okay, trying to look at Brett as Hulk was not the right thing to do. You had to look at Brett as Brett. And that was the period that everything we did, we did make that comment. God damn, this is Hulk. What would you do? The issue with that was even if it was Hulk at that point, we probably would have done something different because what had worked for so many years needed to change. And, that was evident in the business, and I think WCW with the NWO and everything that they did pushed that to make all of us change the way we did business. Could you guys have booked Patriot differently coming into this pay-per-view to make him a stronger opponent for Brett? Or do you think that you know you did everything right? I'm not asking you to shit on it for I think the sake we, of shitting on it, but it just feels like the fans aren't as into the Patriot here. They're not buying it yet. I think because we we went with the theory and we went with the build, we're going to bring him in on top and they're going to accept him as the top guy because that's how we'll bring him in. Maybe if 
we had more time to build, it would have meant more. But it was it was rushed. Not it was rushed. And it was also put in a position where you look at the other attractions on the show that you feel, okay, you can have this match that may be a little bit uh, less attractive and not look at as, you know, is this match going to be the one, the one match everybody wants to see? No, but it's a championship match that people will be interested in. And yeah, just, it, it just was a rush. It was a rush without a doubt. We're going to get lots of craziness here with uh, Davy Boy. <clears throat> Excuse me. Davy Boy's going to be here. Uh, Vader's going to be here. They're going to brawl to the back. The match continues. Lots of near falls. Eventually, Patriot gets the sharpshooter on Brett, which is kind of cool. But Brett reverses it into his own sharpshooter. It gets the submission win. Great story. I like the finish. But after the match, Brett gives Patriot a pile driver breaks his American flag, and then chokes him with it and winds up decking Pat Patterson as well. Meltzer would say, it was hard to figure out after having Patriot do a submission job why he was buried so badly in the post-match as well. At this point, this is me freestyling, not Dave. At this point, it does feel like, hey, Patriot was a placeholder here. We don't really have any long-term plans. We just needed to put together a couple of things and, and we'll be done with him in, in, real, in fairly short order. Had you already figured that out by this pay-per-view? I know we're not done with him yet. He's still got a little bit of gas left in the tank for you guys, but had, had, had he sort of already, you know, decided his own fate? We needed to pour gas on Brett. Right. It just, it was, it was an opportunity. Pick one. Who are you, who are you going to go with here? Who is, uh, where do you want to put the heat? And it was heat and wanted to put the heat on Brett. So that was the reason for doing that. Wanted Brett walking out of there as strong as he could be. So Brett's going to come off strong here. It's the submission win. Gets a lot of heat after the match. But it feels like Brett would have been a guy who would have made an issue of not being on last. I know we just talked about it, and that was just me and you talking. What did Brett think about him not being in the main event? And, in fact, Shawn Michaels is. All right, not me. Well, last match. Sorry, last match. Sean's going on last, not Brett, the champion. That feels like something that would have annoyed the fuck out of Brett. Actually, Brett was happy to get back to the hotel before room, room service, service ended. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, real life. Uh yeah. I bet you it did probably irk Brett in that perception. I, I, I would not be surprised if it did irk Brett. But I think, at least at the time, he's like, okay, you know, whatever. But I think deep down inside that it probably did irk Brett, that he felt that he should close all the shows. Well, let's uh, let's keep it going. Let's talk about the main event, or I'm sorry, the last match. It's Undertaker and Shawn Michaels, their first singles pay-per-view match. Uh, maybe their first match. I mean, such a... Huge rivalry they're going to have for the rest of their career. So many great matches, including the one the following month, Bad Blood, one of the best matches ever. We talked about earlier in the show how this all got started at SummerSlam. Um, there was a, a crime committed. Bret Hart accidentally stole the championship from The Undertaker. 
with an errant chair shot from Shawn Michaels. That's like a, a crime in sports. Uh, do you love crazy stories about athletes and their prime and the crazy shit they do? Well, like gentleman Chris Adams, headbutting a pilot mid-flight and then changing shirts in an attempt to avoid arrest? What about Mel Hall having not one, but two pet mountain lions? How about NASCAR's Jeremy Mayfield testing positive for meth many times and still trying to convince the world that every test was wrong? Well, every week, Crime and Sports Podcast takes an unmerciful and hilarious look at these professional athletes, their upbringing, how they got to the top, their fall from grace, from losing the biggest games of their lives with the law. The hosts are comedians who do research and find the funny in the epic world of sports, true crime, and you don't even have to like sports to listen. Crime and Sports bring you new episodes every Tuesday. There's over 100 episodes in the back catalog. For all you binge listeners, you can start anywhere. But might we just suggest the beginning? Head over to Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify, wherever you prefer to listen to podcasts, and search Crime and Sports. Now, this main event is no crime at all. They're going to go 16 minutes and 3 seconds. Uh, the whole deal is about 23 minutes between a nearly 5-minute pre-match brawl and then a few ma- a few minutes post-match brawl. Excellent work, but a lot of ref bumps. Maybe some, I don't know, contrived booking, I think Meltzer would say, because we're using knuckles and the referees are down and Rick Rude's here. But the big thing that happens here, I can't believe this is a thing, The Undertaker does a running dive over the top rope to the floor. And this is a a dive that even Meltzer would say would have made Psychosis or Great Sasuke proud. Really unbelievable. They go to a no contest here, but the work is so good. Meltzer still gives it a three and a quarter star, three and three quarter stars. Chat me up, though. When did you know The Undertaker was going to do this fucking dive? The Flying Cow. Um... (laughs) I probably knew that night, but it's just one of those. Okay, you know, we'll, we'll we'll see it. He's a big, agile, goddamn hell of an athlete. So nothing surprised me with what he would do, what he would try. But you know, you, you look at this and going back and watching it, it was it was Wild West, Gaga, everything all over the building. But again, in hindsight, when you look at it, you have to understand the story it was telling was to get us to Hell in a Cell. And the beauty of that, knowing that, and you watch it, it's like, oh, my God, it's some of the best storytelling and tremendous effort on everyone's part because everybody did play a part in this, just adding one more level of the importance of Hell in a Cell and putting that match in this brand new structure that no one knows what the hell it is. So I thought that was incredibly cool, and going back and watching it, that's one where you put your pen down and and sit back and enjoy because it was that good of a match. What was it about Shawn Michaels and Undertaker that worked so well? Is it typical David and Goliath, just except with one of the best big men and arguably the best little man or you know normal human? I mean, these guys are just clicking on all cylinders, not just here, but bad blood. And every other time they had a match, just outstanding stuff. I think it was two things, trust and respect. They trusted one another, um, just complete blind trust. And 
They both had respect for one another in the ring. And Shawn Michaels is at his very best, Shawn Michaels here. Meltzer would even call it a Michaels bump-a-thon. I mean, he's taking bumps on the ramp, into the bushes, on the set, just everywhere. If you're going to watch one match from this show, I would recommend the minis one or this one. This, of course, uh, is going to be the beginning of a huge feud. Hell in a Cell coming, then Royal Rumble 98, and then there are two WrestleMania matches many years later that many people would say are the best matches they've ever seen. Just really click it on all cylinders. The next day on Raw, Commissioner Slaughter would come out and announce an intercontinental tournament and say that Austin was suspended until he gets clearance, and therefore he has to forfeit the belt. As you can imagine, Austin comes out, catches Slaughter with a stunner, and teases going after Vince McMahon until he was pulled away. So the story continues here, man. Austin is going to be white, white hot, and he's getting that way by not wrestling. Just stunning dudes who aren't even supposed to be taking the stunner. It's one of those happy accidents, man, and the rise of Stone Cold Steve Austin. I enjoy visiting 1997, my favorite year as a fan. This, on the surface, probably feels like a throwaway pay-per-view, but I enjoy it because we've got the Patriot. We've got The Undertaker going over the top. We've got the creative finish after Austin has to you know, forfeit the tag title. We get the stunner on Owen, and the fucking headbangers become the champ. If you had to give this a letter grade, A, B, C, D, F, what would you give this Ground Zero pay-per-view? First time watching it in a long time. A B plus plus. Well, that's all we can ask for. Yeah, uh, sorry, it's we're a, a little plus. late. What's the, yeah, double plus. You got to like that. It's like our new top five, double plus. Right. Well, we were double plus this week. Sorry, we were a little later. We had some technical difficulties. I'm under the weather, but we're uh, committed to bringing you a show. So we appreciate you tuning in to In Your House Ground Zero 1997. We'll be back with a brand new show next Friday and every Friday right here on Something to Wrestle With. Bruce Pritchard. Shakaka. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.